Today, Trump's former lawyer, the former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, voluntarily surrendered at the Fulton County Jail. Mr. Giuliani was formally arrested for his alleged role in the effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. But there was one part of that very standard criminal procedure that really seemed to anger the former mayor, America's mayor. I don't know if I plead today, but if I do, I plead not guilty. And I get photographed. Isn't that nice? A, a mugshot for the man who probably put the worst criminals of the 20th century in jail. They're going to they're going to degrade themselves by doing a mugshot of me. Like, people will recognize me. So here is that mugshot. This is what Giuliani was so incensed about, being photographed at a county jail and paraded in front of the press like a criminal. Which is ironic. Part of what made Rudy Giuliani a national figure in the first place was his practice of parading people in front of the press like they were criminals. When Giuliani was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York in the 1980s, he repopularized the concept of the perp walk. Giuliani didn't invent the practice of allowing the press to photograph an arrest, but as a criminal law professor from Loyola Marymount University put it, Mr. Giuliani took that practice and made an art form out of it. And Giuliani didn't always make sure he had his facts right before doing so. Wall Street isn't used to the sight of its best and brightest in handcuffs, being arrested or charged with insider trading. People like Robert Freeman, a partner at Goldman Sachs, Timothy Tabor, a former vice president at Kidder Peabody, Richard Wigton, also of Kidder Peabody. That last guy, Richard Wigton, he was handcuffed at his corporate office and led away, reportedly crying because of how shaken he was by the arrest. Mr. Giuliani thought the humiliation of being perp-walked would, would make these guys just come clean. The problem was that a few months after arresting at least two of the people he perp-walked, Mr. Giuliani had to withdraw the charges. He didn't have enough evidence to go to trial. Not exactly one for contrition, Giuliani promised the evidence he did have was just the tip of the iceberg and that even bigger charges were coming in record-breaking time. They never did. Now, when Giuliani first had these men arrested, he maintained that there wasn't anything out of the ordinary about his treatment of these men, which makes his statements today about the indignity of a public arrest so, shall we say, ironic. And then there is this. People like to say I'm different. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that took down the mafia, that made New York City the safest city in America, reduced crime more than any mayor in the history of any city, anywhere, and I'm fighting for justice. Now, it is true that the New York City crime rate went down in the 1990s, but that was part of a national trend. What Mr. Giuliani was really known for as mayor was his so-called zero-tolerance policy toward crime which meant racial profiling and the use of stop-and-frisk policing, where the police stop, detain, and forcibly search citizens with little need for probable cause. The targets of all that were typically black and brown New Yorkers, the overwhelming majority of whom were never actually charged with a crime. And now Mr. Giuliani, who is charged with a whole litany of felonies, he has been arrested. And not only is he complaining about getting the very same treatment he meted out for decades— he is making a spectacle of it. 
This was Giuliani's perp walk outside of the Fulton County Jail today after his arrest. The clutch of reporters and cameras was so thick you could hardly see the man. But here's the thing. Giuliani left the jail in a car and then presumably he chose to stop just to create this circus. And then Mr. Giuliani led the press straight to a place called Second Chance Bail Bonds. All of this, a show, his show. Now, right now, half of Trump's co-defendants have been booked in Fulton County Jail. Trump is set to surrender tomorrow evening. His remaining co-defendants have until Friday at noon to surrender. And two of them, Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, and his former lawyer at the DOJ, Jeffrey Clark, they tried to get a federal court to stop D.A. Fonnie Willis from arresting them this week. But tonight, a judge denied those requests. And unless an appeals court weighs in, Mark Meadows and Jeffrey Clark are set to be arrested in Fulton County. Keep your eyes out for the mugshots. Joining me now are Mimi Rocha, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, now the district attorney for Westchester County, and Gwen Keyes Fleming, former district attorney for DeKalb County in Georgia. Mimi and Gwen, it's great to have you here. Let me first just get your thoughts about the sort of late breaking news here regarding the judge effectively giving Meadows and Clark the hand on their filing to delay this arrest. Does that seem unusual to you? And does that suggest anything about the broader case to have this moved into federal court? It doesn't seem unusual, Alex. In fact, it seems so normal um, that I think that's almost what's taking people by surprise. Um, We're so used to seeing delay tactics, I think, work in various um, institutions that should be about accountability. And when we see the process working the way that it should, everyone's presumed innocent, everyone gets their trial, their day in court, their arguments, but it has to proceed. And the judges... And the prosecutors in all of the various cases are saying, no, no, there's no special treatment here. We're going ahead with this the way we would for just about any other defendant. If anything, the allowing people to surrender and giving them the time to surrender was an accommodation, Mm -hmm. an appropriate one. But beyond that, we're proceeding. So I think it's the normalcy of seeing the process actually working that is actually what's surprising. That's the unusual thing here. Gwen, I got to ask the judge who basically said, your case has no merit, Mr. Meadows. We're not going to delay your arrest until the same judge rules on his petition to have this thrown into federal court on Monday. That does. Do you think that this means that the idea that this case, the state case, goes to federal court is a non-starter. I mean, it's the same judge that is making the decision today that is going to be making the decision on Monday. So you're right. It is the same judge. And uh, that is a factor of what I understand to be the federal rules related uh, about related cases. But they are these are two different issues. Judge Jones ruled today saying that that basically the state case would move forward, including the aspects of arrest or turning oneself in. So this was a procedural uh, ruling, if you will. The original, uh, the motions asked that the arrests or the case be put on hold such that neither Mr. Meadows nor Mr. Clark would be arrested. And so the judge clearly denied those requests, uh, citing the law that the state case goes forward. What's happening on Monday relates to whether uh, the federal court should take jurisdiction of the entire case based on some defendants alleging that the actions that they are being charged 
with or the actions underlying the charges were part of their federal roles. And I think what you saw in <clears throat> the DA's response today is a long description of how the acts in the indictment were outside the color of their federal roles. So do you think, I mean, I guess reading into that, Gwen, do you see any inherent sympathy the judge might have for the case the DA is making? Or is it just we're starting from scratch on Monday, don't infer anything about the judge's position vis-a-vis DA Willis and Mr. Meadows today? Well, I've always gotten in trouble whenever I inferred something that a judge would do based <laughs> yeah. on one order. So I've learned over 17 years not to do that. Uh, I think this judge, Judge Jones in particular, is one <clears throat> who can separate the issues. Uh, and you will see him do that. He will uh, hold the hearing that needs to be held on Monday and make a decision after both sides have presented whatever evidence they choose to offer. And and if I'm just what really quickly, Gwen, if if the judge decides to move this for federal to federal court, that means he moves all of the indictments to federal court. Is that right? That is my understanding. Um, Now, there may be various motions uh, to sever or other things. I know one defendant filed a speedy trial demand in Fulton County. And so that obviously will have an impact on whether all 19 will be tried within Uh, those speedy trial timelines or whether there will be other severances or breaking the case down into bite-sized pieces. So uh, many of us who track Georgia law are debating about this behind the scenes and we're waiting to see what comes out of the hearing on Monday as well as the speedy trial motion. Oh, I'm sure the Georgia legal circles are a Twitter. Um, (laughs) to, To Gwen's point, Ken Cheesebro, who is one of the co-defendants in this, in many ways the architect of the fake electors plot, has filed for a speedy trial, which is the opposite position that we think uh, the former president would like to take, which is push this thing as far away from me as possible. 2035 isn't isn't, uh, far enough. What is the meaningful impact of having one defendant say, let me get this done in October, and the other saying 2045? Well, um, as Gwen alluded to, and I'm sure she's more familiar with how under Georgia law in particular this might play out, but it's going to depend on whether, first of all, whether that is granted at all. And I understand that Georgia is more generous in terms of once a defendant makes a motion for a speedy trial, you get it. Um, But what that means as to whether then he is severed off from the other defendants or whether that means that groups of defendants or all of them go together. I will say that if he gets to go himself first and alone, that is an advantage for the other defendants Hmm. because they get a preview of their case. Of the case. Now, there aren't a lot of secrets in this case. There aren't a lot of unknowns, I should say. But most defendants would like to see Um, witnesses testify before they're testifying against them. So I'm not saying he's doing it for that reason, but it would, in Mm. fact, confer a strategic advantage. You have witnesses then who have testimony to be cross-examined with later. Um, And nobody says the same thing exactly the same way twice. You know, I mean, the important things, you hope that they do, but witnesses say things differently. And so that is something to think about strategically. It may not be anything that uh, the DA can do anything about. Mm -hmm. That isn't an argument 
I don't think, under Georgia law for not giving a defendant a speedy trial, but it could prejudice the government. Huh. Gwen, when we talk about the just the volume of, of co-defendants in this, there are, I believe, 18 and the former president, the, the expectation has been that number is going to get trimmed, whether maybe because Ken Cheesebro's uh, here, a trial is spun off or someone flips. And on, I'd love to get your thoughts on on potentially moving some of these uh, co-defendants into the cooperating witness category. We were talking with Andrew Weissman yesterday, and he said, this is the window when if you're going to flip, you do it. Now, I think we have the graphic of all the mugshots that we have and all the people who've been booked in this in this case. Right. The question is, how how when will we know if someone is becoming uh, a cooperator? Is there are there external signs we should look for in terms of their behavior, their meetings, their itineraries, if you will? I think there there might be some signs. Uh, obviously, if a plea is entered or a conditional plea, that is something that would have to happen in open court. Obviously, we've talked about how the law in Georgia allows cameras unless the DA or the defense team asks uh, that the court be closed for some reason. Uh, usually the plea is entered on condition and the sentence is uh, held until testimony is given and, and the witnesses demonstrated the cooperation that they promised. Uh, so there there might be some outward signs. And the interesting thing is, at least in practice of many DAs, when a defendant starts filing either speedy trial demands or other motions, that sort of ends negotiations about the ability mm. to get a reduced sentence, uh, to lesser charges or fewer charges. Uh, and so I, I'm... That at least was the practice when I was DA. We'll see uh, how this DA handles it going forward. Mm. One more question, because we spent a long time talking about him at the beginning of this segment. Rudy Giuliani. He's out there on the steps talking about how this is Fannie Willis is going to go down in history as having conducted one of the worst attacks on the American Constitution uh, when the case is dismissed um, and that that she has violated people's First Amendment right to advocate the government to petition the government for grievances like an election they believe was stolen. Does he have a case to make here? Rudy Giuliani is notoriously someone that has been, I believe, the New York Civil Liberties Union was involved in 34 First Amendment lawsuits against Rudy Giuliani. Now he's invoking the First Amendment. Do you see any credibility to his potential defense here? No, this is not a legal defense. Um, And again, he has a right to make any defense he wants in court. But it is, as you pointed out, just beyond ironic that this man, who was the head of the office that I was in and uh, was respected, you know, in some ways, um, is is doing this tactic of attacking the prosecutor and attacking, again, the process, not saying on the facts this case is wrong. In fact, he's not doing that. He can't do that. But he is going down into the dirt um, in a public defense, not a courtroom defense. Yeah, a lot of the... Um Stuff we saw today seemed much more designed to be uh, weighed in the court of public opinion as opposed to an actual court. Mimi Roca and Gwen Keith Fleming, thank you both for your time tonight. There is still much, much more to come this evening, including what may have happened to the leader of the Russian mercenary group who led a revolt against Vladimir Putin exactly two months ago and who might be behind it. But first, Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes was convicted of seditious conspiracy in November for breaching the Capitol. But today we learned that Rhodes might have had the support 
from the people sworn to protect the White House. That is next. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. So if you have spent some time with special counsel Jack Smith's recent court filing and his prosecution of 2020 election interference, then you might have discovered an interesting little tidbit. Mr. Smith says in the discovery evidence that's part of his case that he has about 3.1 million pages of material from the Secret Service, including emails. So it appears that the Secret Service is of interest to Jack Smith. We even know that as many uh, as six Secret Service agents have testified before his grand jury in this investigation. Why? We do not yet know. We may also never know the contents of the missing Secret Service text messages from January 6th. They were all irretrievably deleted. So there is a lot of intrigue here. And today we got a very interesting look at Secret Service communications with the far-right Oath Keepers Militia just a few months before January 6th, and we got them courtesy of the watchdog group crew. Now, we already knew that Secret Service agents were talking with the Oath Keepers about their plans to attend a Trump rally in North Carolina in September of 2020. We heard this from an Oath Keeper who testified during founder Stuart Rhodes' criminal trial. And the Secret Service confirmed that contact, but also said those interactions were routine. Having said that, It looks a little different when you read the communications themselves. After speaking to Stuart Rhodes, one agent, one Secret Service agent, described himself as an unofficial liaison to the Oath Keepers, inching towards official. That is a Secret Service agent describing himself as a would-be official liaison to the Oath Keepers, a paramilitary organization. Stuart Rhodes would later be convicted of seditious conspiracy and sentenced to 18 years in prison for his effort to keep Trump in power, but another agent, after speaking to Mr. Rhodes, told colleagues that Rhodes was not attending Trump's rally to push a political agenda. No. The emails further give the impression that Secret Service agents took the Oath Keepers at their word when they said they were attending the event to protect Trump supporters from leftist groups. Joining me now is Carol Lenning, national investigative reporter at The Washington Post and author of Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. Carol, thank you for being here. When I read the story, we immediately said, get Carol Lenning, because we have talked in previous months about the strange relationship between the Secret Service 
and Trump supporters and whether there exists something unusual, an unusual dimension to that. When you read this correspondence from the Secret Service about the Oath Keepers, what was your impression? Alex, I'm so glad that you ask it that way. My impression right off the bat was, okay, we all know that law enforcement generally leans a little conservative, a little red, and in some cases in the Secret Service, definitely pro-Trump. But in this instance, they sound almost... Um, almost naive, as if they're not familiar with what the Oath Keepers stand for. They refer to them as an extremely, uh, a very, I think the exact words were very pro-law enforcement official organization and pro-Trump, almost as if they are uh, walking hand in hand, like-minded friends uh, of each other. And also the naivete comes through with the seeming acceptance of exactly the line you quoted, Alex, which is they are not here, emphasize not here, to express a political opinion or to protest, just to protect supporters of Mr. Trump. Well, that certainly was not their role in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, and it doesn't seem to have been their role in previous uh, rallies in Washington to, quote unquote, stop the steal, other pro-Trump efforts to sort of cling to power after he had lost the election. Yeah, I mean, I, I was stunned by the idea that a Secret Service agent would call himself an unofficial, inching toward official liaison with the Oath Keepers. I mean, the Secret Service has waved away the correspondence between the Oath Keepers and its own agents as just kind of routine contact. But on the outside, it's hard to imagine them having the same relationship, the same unofficial liaison relationship with, oh, I don't know, Antifa, right? The, 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 the sort of coziness between these organizations I think raises some eyebrows. Are you surprised that the agency has not done more to sort of either disabuse the public of what was going on here or further investigate what was going on here? So, you know, I think it's hard to draw a real clear—I I totally get your gut instinct. Um, I think it's hard to draw a conclusion about how the Secret Service uses the term liaison. It is—and I just want to say this in fairness—it is normal for the Secret Service, when the president is involved, for them to reach out to different protest groups to try to suss them out, you know, maybe undercover or in, in plain clothes, and say, hey, just want to check in with you, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, uh, Right to Life Marchers, whatever the group may be, want to touch base with you, want to let you know the rules, want to want you to be aware of what you can and can't do during this rally or this event. That's not unusual. However, I think what this really highlights and cements for a lot of us reporters who wrote extensively about January 6th is that law enforcement did not have any real palpable fears about a conservative-leaning group with white nationalism and white supremacists in its, in its midst, paramilitary in many respects, um, and basically viewed it as guys that were on the side of cops. Uh, and therefore, they were only worried—and this is not just the Secret Service, but law enforcement generally—only seemed to be worried about the idea of a, a uh, like a fracas. If Antifa showed up and Trump supporters showed up, there'd be violence and blood in the streets. But that isn't what happened. And that naivete and that assumption about what the Oath Keepers were up to was 
you know, really an intelligence failure writ large for the federal government, not just the Secret Service. Yeah. And when you talk about that intelligence failure, let's say in and around January 6th, my question to you is, I noticed, I'm sure you did, that Jack Smith has included three million pages, some of it redundancies, some of it unrelated, but necessary for the purposes of discovery. But nonetheless, a lot of material from the Secret Service in this initial batch of discovery that's being shared with Trump's legal team. Do you have any thoughts on what that could be? Well, you may remember, Alex, that at the very last minute, under intense pressure from Congress and the select committee investigating January 6th, the failures, the the president's motives, the role of various White House aides, under intense pressure to the Secret Service, dove through all of its records because it had already deleted all of the texts. It says inadvertently that we're covering this time period from all personnel phones in the Secret Service. So it turned over more than a million pages of material. I I was told it was more than a million documents, and I should be careful about pages versus documents. Um, And that was something that the, the committee was pouring over in the final days to try to understand what was inside this material. I would imagine some of what Jack Smith has it overlaps with what the committee received. And within that, obviously, there is a lot of, of traffic go, going back and forth about what were Donald Trump's plans for marching on the Capitol on that day, of joining the people that he had been warned had weapons. Um, people he were, was warned had pistols and rifles and tear gas. Uh, what were his plans? What were his pressure points on the Secret Service to take him to the Capitol on that day to join his faithful followers? I have more questions than there are answers, but you helped me a lot this evening, Carol Lennig. Thank you, as always, for your, for your expertise. I appreciate it. Of course. Still ahead this evening, Ron DeSantis says his bright college years showed him the dark side of woke liberalism. But does the anti-elite crusader owe his political pedigree to those Ivy League connections? And the man who led the Russian mercenary group in a revolt against Russian President Putin two months ago today may have died. We will talk about what we know about all of that and who might be responsible coming up next. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. We are following breaking news out of Russia today, where a plane purportedly carrying Yevgeny Prigozhin, founder of the Wagner Mercenary Group, has crashed. 
Two months to the day after Prigozhin staged a, short, staged a short-lived mutiny against the Russian military. According to Russian officials, Prigozhin was one of the 10 passengers on the plane. Now, all are said to have died after the plane crashed while en route for, to St. Petersburg from Moscow. However, we still do not have official confirmation that Prigozhin himself is dead. Now, you can see here the plane suddenly plummeting to the ground, which has fueled speculations about whether the crash was an accident or not. According to The Washington Post, two loud sounds were heard just before the plane crashed. Now, after his failed coup, Putin exiled Prigozhin and his followers to nearby Belarus, and he has branded them as traitors. Today, President Biden did not rule out that Putin may be behind the crash. I don't know for a fact what happened, but I'm not surprised. Do you think people believe There's not much that happens when Russia is not behind, but I don't know enough to know the answer. Joining me now is Susan Glasser, staff writer for The New Yorker and co-author of Kremlin Rising, Vladimir Putin's Russia and the End of Revolution. Susan, thank you for being here. I just wonder, as a Russia watcher and knower <laughs> such as you are, do you have a theory about why we don't have official confirmation about whether Prigozhin is dead or alive? Well, look, uh, you know, there's always a lag between uh, the two things. Uh, I think the message is pretty loud and clear. Uh, certainly, it, the default setting here has to be that Pergozin is pre presumed dead at this moment in time. Uh, the Wagner Group uh, social media channels are also suggesting that that's exactly what happened. You made the point, Alex, that it's exactly two months since the, the failed mutiny by Pergozin and uh, a cohort of his men. He didn't Unwisely, it appears he did not choose to stick with the exile in Belarus that was negotiated to end that aborted mutiny. And I think, you know, in our experience, Vladimir Putin, as Bill Burns said, I think uh, just a few weeks ago, he likes his revenge served cold. It was unsustainable in many ways for this really overt act of challenge to uh, the supremacy of the state in Russia. It was, I think, many people expected, frankly, something like this. Uh, and there's a long, long trajectory, over 20 years of people who go into open opposition to Vladimir Putin. They end up dead. They end up poisoned. They end up in mysterious accidents. So, again, there's a long uh, uh, chain of predecessor events to something like this. Do you see this as an escalation of Putin's sort of position as it as it concerns adversaries. I mean, he did say that Prigozhin was going to go on and live in exile. Do you think that Russians chalk this up to, oh, well, he violated effectively the terms of that exile, therefore he deserves it? Or does this in any way discredit Putin in the eyes of Russians? You know, I think this is the Putin believes that the language to speak, the language of power is the long language of the strong beating the weak. Uh, you know, he said that before very openly uh, in his view, it's only the weak that get beaten. And so this is not meant to be subtle uh, and it's not subtle. And uh, Putin's rule over 20 years has not been subtle. Uh, the idea is not to follow some arbitrary set of rules, but to show that you make the rules. And one of the things that was so shocking to Russia watchers, Alex, was the idea that for once, Yevgeny Prigozhin was challenging the state's monopoly on the use of armed power in, in that abortive mutiny. And I think that was really just a shocking moment. So this is very important in many ways for Putin to reassert the supremacy of his rule. And, you know, in my experience, the more over the top and unabashed the 
aggressive move by Putin. That's the kind of choice he's made it again and again to stay in power. He is the longest serving Russian leader since Joseph Stalin uh, and is still relatively young at age 70 years old. Uh, this is a ruthless cutthroat system. And I think a display of naked power uh, is, is exactly what one would imagine Putin going for in a moment like this. Well, it's also worth noting that another top Wagner official, Dmitry Utkin, was also on that plane and may also have perished. The Wagner group has been responsible for, I guess you could call some of Russia's most meaningful successes on the battlefield in Ukraine. So I wonder what you think the implications are for that war more broadly and more specifically the Wagner group's existence. You know, I think that really is an important question, at least in the initial aftermath of the aborted mutiny there. You know, Ukrainians were obviously looking very closely at this. The Pentagon was looking very closely at this. There was no overt sign uh, that it caused a, 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 any kind of problem on the ground for Russians in the fighting the Ukrainians in the counteroffensive. So that's something to watch more. It's also interesting and certainly not a coincidence that it was also announced that General Sergei Surovikin was removed as the head of the Russian Air Force at the same time. He was also taken apparently into custody in the aftermath of the Wagner Rebellion. I think that you have to think that he was also basically uh, pulled aside for being too close to those who challenged the power in Russia. So it's it's yet another earthquake, though, that results from Putin's catastrophic decision to invade Ukraine. I think that's an important way to look at what's happening here. None of this would have come into the open, these disputes inside the Kremlin, if it were not for this kind of catastrophic war that Russia is waging in Ukraine right now. Enormous casualties, questions about the Kremlin's leadership, all of that is a result of biting off more than they could handle in Ukraine. Yeah, well, seismic developments on all fronts tonight. Susan Glasser, thank you as always, Susan. It's great to see you. Thank you. Still to come this evening, how Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the war on elitism is now a party-wide battle. We're going to have more on that strange hypocrisy coming up next. It was June of 2001 when the Tampa Bay Times decided to publish a feel-good story about a local hometown hero who had just graduated from one of America's most prestigious universities. Quoting from that piece, Excelling in academics and athletics, R.D. DeSantis wrapped up a stellar career at Yale University this month. The history and political science graduate earned a 3.75 GPA and captained the baseball team his senior year. Some of our students struggle when they first come to Yale, said John Stuper, the Ivy League school's baseball coach. When R.D. came here, his academic credentials were beyond reproach. When he was elected by his teammates as captain of the Bulldogs his final season, the outfielder heartily accepted the honor. Being voted by your peers says a lot of what they think of you, Stuper said. R.D. DeSantis, the baseball captain, is, of course, Florida Governor Ronald Dion DeSantis. Ron DeSantis. By all accounts, R.D. DeSantis thrived while at Yale. He was reportedly an attentive and popular student. He was well-liked by his peers and voted captain of the baseball team. So contrast that that reality, with the way that Governor Ron DeSantis now describes his time at Yale. I remember the first time I stepped foot on the Yale campus and I show up 
in jean shorts and a t-shirt thinking like, hey, that did not go over well with the Andover and Groton kids. And then I start taking classes. They rejected God and they hated our country. And I'm thinking to myself, like, what have I gotten myself into? Just like the history curriculum in Florida schools, the history of Ron DeSantis' time in the Ivy League has been rewritten. Ron DeSantis now casts himself as a war, warrior fighting the ruling elite. But an exhaustive new piece from The New York Times' Nick Confessori details how much Ron DeSantis spent much of his life trying to succeed in those very same elite circles. While he was captaining the baseball team at Yale, DeSantis joined St. Elmo, a vaunted secret society at the school. He spent his undergraduate years dreaming about getting accepted at another elite institution, Harvard Law School. When DeSantis was eventually admitted to Harvard, he didn't find himself surrounded by cultural Marxists, as he has recounted, but by other conservative elites, people like Leonard Leo, the head of the Conservative Federalist Society, who later helped Governor DeSantis remake Florida's courts. After law school, DeSantis and some of his Harvard friends started their own tutoring firm to help tunnel other people into elite colleges. Their company literally boasted that it was the only LSAT prep course designed exclusively by Harvard Law School graduates. But now Governor DeSantis tells the story of his formative years through a very different lens, and he aims to distance himself from the very institutions that helped him become the national figure he is today. And boy, he is not alone. In just a second, I'm going to talk to my colleague, Joy Reid, about the Ivy League hypocrisy plaguing the modern Republican Party and what it means for their attempts to retake power. That's next. The cosmopolitan elite look down on the common affections that once bound this nation together. The elites who dominate our culture. It all goes back to this woke mind virus that has really swept through a lot of liberal elites and a lot of elite institutions. That would be Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and Ron DeSantis, three of today's Republican, the Republican Party's most prominent voices railing against the effects of the so-called ruling elite. But there is something else they have in common. All three men are graduates of some of the richest, most connected elite institutions in the United States of America, Yale Law, Harvard Law, and Harvard Law, respectively. And that apparent hypocrisy begs the question, do Republican voters see through this shtick? I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask the expert anyway. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Joy Reid, host of The Readout on MSNBC. Joy, it's great to have you here. <laughs> I, I, the, we talked before this segment about this New York Times piece on Ron DeSantis and how he, had, he thrived at Yale. He yeah. was desperate to go to Harvard Law and now has created a brand for himself, mm-hmm. railing against those very same institutions, see, positioning himself as a cultural warrior that is here to tear down the, um, the sort of intellectual walls that have been <laughs> built to ignore the advice of experts on everything, whether it's history or race or science. And my question to you is, do you think that this sort of hypocrisy is born of legitimate sort of grievance with elites, or do you think it's fully just a political tool? I think it's kind of both. First of all, Egad's a Yale man. I mean, he's a Yale (laughs) and a Harvard man, uh, DeSantis. Um, The thing that's sort of fascinating about him specifically, um, when you talk about, you know, ignoring scientific experts, his surgeon general, who's also a Harvard man, 
um, is his sort of anti-vax, anti-science, right? So he's sort of known for that as well. I think part of it is the fact that the Republican Party now mainly appeals to non-college white voters. Yeah. And so they're trying to appeal to people who are very much unlike themselves, right? I mean, even the J.D. Vances of the world, who wrote a whole book like, you know, slagging the people that he ostensibly came from, right? People in Appalachia. They are trying to appeal to working class white Christians. And so they've got to sort of make themselves seem more like them and Mm -hmm. seem more likable to them. And so I think that's part of it. George W. Bush did it. I want to have a beer with George W. Bush. I mean, he would never have a beer with you. He's actually a very rich man, right, who bought his Texas ranch in 2000 when he ran for president. So they they have to appeal to them by trying to mimic them. That's part of it. The other part of it is this deep resentment. And DeSantis in particular displays it against the fact that in their mind, at some point, elite universities stopped serving rich white men and their interests and became these sort of pluralistic places mm-hmm. where ideas about, you know, racial pluralism and economic pluralism and inclusiveness, inclusiveness, you know, affirmative action, that those things in their mind poison these institutions and that they've got to purge education, the whole system from K through 12, all the way through graduate school. Yeah of liberalism, because liberalism actually jeopardizes the thing they care most about, which is tax cuts for the super rich. Yeah, and and just patriarchal power. And patriarchal power. And they hate the fact that they believe that it is the university that, that have done it. And look, they are right in this one sense. One thing that universities have done is make it very difficult for Republicans to win in any town that's got a university. Well, in right. It. And that is the where break. Right. That's the break. That is the thing that divides Democrats and 100%. Republicans. It's 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 education. I I in the profile in the New York Times that just came out about DeSantis, it seems like covid was an inflection point for a lot of these anti-institutional, anti-intellectual, anti-science opinions of Ron DeSantis to become crystallized, right? Initially, he can be seen in a mask. And then he starts talking about, he, he I think, closes certain institutions. He's abiding by the science sure. of, of the, the experts. And then he starts having these other conversations and sees the hit to Florida's economy and says, we got to change this position. Yeah. And for a lot of other Americans, COVID proved this inflection point to sort of rail against the elites to the degree that there is polling from earlier this summer saying among likely Republican primary voters, the question is, when trying to make decisions, do you think elected officials should prioritize the knowledge of trained experts or the common sense of ordinary people? 25 percent want to listen to experts. Yeah. 69 percent want to listen to the ordinary people. Well, you, that seems like a problem in American politics. Absolutely it is. But if you think about his political incentives in the state of Florida, which is driven overwhelmingly by tourism in places like Florida, where tourism is the lifeline of the economy, shutting down restaurants, shutting down gyms and bars is an existential crisis economically. Yes. If Disney's not open, Florida ain't open. Well, yeah. I, I guess Disney he will table that. for another day with Ron DeSantis. He's fighting Mickey Mouse. But I mean, the thing is, is that he literally sued cruise lines that wanted to have testing and masking. He literally attempted to force them to let people who were infected with COVID get on the ship. Yeah. Because his priority at that point was to boost the economy and to keep the economy from being harmed by 
COVID and because he knew he wanted to run. Yeah, his re-election He knew he prospects. wanted to run for president. And so he was putting the economics first. Remember, this guy was a Tea Party member. Yeah. So the most important thing is money in the economy, not people staying alive. He also is at the state with the most elderly people. So look what he did. He claims that he was anti-vax. He made sure that wealthy and elderly Floridians got the vax. Yes. He made sure they were vaccinated. An important voting uh, block for Ron DeSantis. Correct. And also an important base uh, of the people who fund his private flights, because, you know, he doesn't fly commercial. Yes. He flies private, which became a huge controversy. People are wondering, why won't this ordinary guy who's supposed to be just the baseball player? Who Common sense to go to of Harvard, ordinary people flying private. But he will not get on a regular plane with regular people. And I don't think it's because he's so famous he might get recognized. He's really not that famous. He just wants to live like a Trump yes. and be another Donald Trump. Well, I mean, I think that that's what's so um frustrating to be euphemistic about it. This hypocrisy is just the acceptance that these guys are doing this all for personal and political gain and none of it is authentic. It's an act. Has a golden toilet. And yet he talks about how much he is of the people. Yeah. And here we are. Today's modern Republican Party. Joy (laughs) Reid, just just stay on the program and come back tomorrow Co-host with me all the time. (laughs) Let's just hang out. Let's just do that. We will in a little bit, but we're not going to talk about that right now. (laughs) Joy Reid, host of The Readout at 7 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. As always. That is our show for tonight. 